Well, good morning and welcome to Christ the King. Again, happy Mother's Day to all our moms. If you have your scriptures with you, go ahead and open them to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to continue uh, with this section that we've been looking at. We only have a couple more sermons in this, in this uh, series on 1 Peter. I do hope it's been helpful to you, and uh, I'm very grateful that uh, we've had this time together to look at this amazing little book written by the Apostle Peter. Uh, I am going to read the entire section, 1 through uh, 11, because it actually hangs together. And so, although we talked about 1 through 7 last week, I'm going to go ahead and read it just for context, and uh, and then we'll we'll get going. So now hear the Word of God. It's in your bulletin. If you don't have your Bible with you, if you do have your Bible, you can use that, of course. Uh, But it is in your bulletin printed underneath the... uh, the section here. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles do living in sensuality, passion, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join with them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The Word of the Lord. What Peter's addressing in this entire letter is how we are to live in the last days. These are the last days. Last days started with Jesus coming and uh, with His death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. Those marked the last days. And so uh, Peter is talking to Christians, much like us, who are living in cultures that are not predominantly Christian. Now, at some point in American history, we seem to think that the United States was a Christian uh, nation. But uh, reputable historians will tell you that is not the case. If you look at the founding documents, uh, the United States was not established as a Christian nation. However, we were heavily influenced by Christianity, and Christianity held a privileged place in American history for a long time. That is changing, as you well know, and it can't happen soon enough as far as I'm concerned. Now that's my personal opinion. I'm not putting that on any of you. 
but the, the, the more struggle that the church has had in history, the more it has had to fight for its faith, the stronger it becomes. And the opposite is true when Christianity, organized religion, finds its place in the seats of power, we lose strength. We lose big and huge to the point that in a lot of times the church has actually fallen into apostasy primarily because it enjoyed the privilege of being in the seat of power. So I'm telling you that just as a matter of history. Peter is very much addressing a church like ours who's living in a pluralistic society, a society where, you know, there's lots of gods, lots of religions, lots of denominations. And the question comes up for all of us is how do we live in this world and what do we do? And early on we talked about the, 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 uh, the danger that we face because Christians have gone to extremes. They've gone to one side completely where we hunker and bunker and we go live in monasteries or we go live in the wilderness. We try to get away from the world all the way over to where we are actually, as I said a moment ago, the seat of power, what we call Christendom, when Christianity enjoyed, you know, the, the church ruled the world, or at least the Western world. And we think that, that ideally we should be somewhere along that continuum. We're either going to live out in the wilderness somewhere in these communes, uh, or we're going to be in control and in power. The Gospel and Peter and, and Apostle Paul and all the New Testament writers take us off that, off that continuum to a whole other place. A Gospel-centered life, an alternate community, a different kind of people all together. Another nation. He calls, us, he calls us the people of God. He says, you are elect and chosen. And we need to see ourselves that way. So Karen Jobes, in her commentary on this section, he says, Peter teaches that Christians, listen, are to remain in the social structures of their society. We are to remain a part active in society. Yet, without participating in institutional practices that are recognized as contrary to God's will. And Peter outlines them, and what he outlines are pretty radical things, but we don't think about it that prostitution was legalized and was a form of worship in the ancient world. That debauchery and drunkenness and the bacchanals of you know going in and be and and going into an altered state of consciousness and throwing these uh, uh, I can't even talk about what they did there these amazingly awful and horrendously debauched uh, uh, part what we would call partying but they weren't parties they were worship their gods required them to do that sexual perversion that that. Even we can, but we think we're living in such a depraved society. Folks, they would laugh at us. Their society was so much worse than we are. And the church thrived. But here, we wring our hands and we worry and we fret and we complain because, oh my God, it's all over for us. And I've tried over this series to tell you this is not the end. Christians are to stand with courage and faith and, and look Look our society in the eyes, not with judgment and condemnation, but with love and compassion. Death is not the end 
of judgment. You see, in the Gentile world, the Gentiles believed that when you died, it was over. That's the end of it. No more. So live, drink, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And Peter is saying to the culture at large, death is not the end. You will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And if you're here today and maybe you're just thinking about Christianity or exploring Christianity, you don't know what you believe about Christianity, let me tell you one thing. When you die, you will stand before God. You will give account for your life. That goes for you Christians as well. All of us will. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And the scrolls will be unrolled and we will see everything we did and all that happened in our life. Every idle word we spoke. Every misdeed we committed. Every evil thought we ever let roll around in our heads. It will all come out. Every bit of it. Nobody's going to escape. We're all going to stand there at that judgment seat. And in this life, it may appear that Christians are being judged as the Gentiles believe. You know, if you were having a bad life, if you were suffering, it was God's judgment on you. And if you were blessed, hey, everything's going well. But that's all there was. And our society still believes that. There are mega churches in this country, that's what they teach. They teach that if you uh, act right, do right, believe right, have enough faith, that you can be prosperous, you can have everything you want in this life. And so they look over here at our little church or over at some other small church and people are suffering, we're sick, and we actually pray for healing, but we also pray for endurance through the suffering. And, and I tell and your pastor gets up and tells you, expect to be persecuted, expect suffering, it's going to come. And they say, well, see there, that's why they're suffering. John Calvin said this, listen, John Calvin said this, Death does not hinder Christ from being always our defender. It is remarkable consolation that death itself, death itself brings no loss to our salvation. Even if Christ does not appear as deliverer in this life, even if He doesn't show up when you command Him, you rub the lamp and say, Hop to it, Jesus. Get over here and get busy on my life. I want blessings. Even if He doesn't jump out of that lamp like a genie and do what you ask Him to do, Calvin says, He is still our deliverer. His redemption. Listen, this is the Gospel, folks. This is the truth. His redemption is not void. It is not without effect. His power extends even to the dead. Do you see, death is not a judgment from God to us. Death is not the end for us. And so the Apostle Paul said, whether I live or whether I die, I belong to Jesus. He takes The Gospel takes away from us fear. And it makes us reorient our thinking. And that's exactly what he says in these verses. Arm yourselves. Arm yourselves with this resolve. In other words, reorient your thinking to this way of thinking so that you can be the alternate society. So that as the world looks at you, they actually see something different. They see people that... It's not that we don't dance, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go out with girls that do. You know, that kind of thing. 
It's that we actually do love one another. That we are actually forgiving. That we actually carve out huge amounts of time for our family, for our friends, for the lost. That we stand up for social justice. That we are the loudest voices in the cacophony of voices for what is right in this world and what is wrong with this world. We're shouting against it even at the expense of our own lives. And, Paul, and Peter is pleading with this church that's under persecution, do not give in. Stand for your faith. Stand up for what is right. People will recognize. They will come to you and ask you, what is the hope that you have in you? How can you be living like this? Not how come you don't smoke. Whoever comes to you and says, well, I notice you don't smoke. I notice that you don't drink. And, oh, well, I'm a Christian. I don't do that. Well, big deal. A lot of people don't smoke and don't drink. But has anybody come to us and said, wow, you know, I can't believe the way you forgive. You know, these people over here are just tearing your life apart. I don't understand. In your job. You know, I understand you let these people go and walk over. You're always doing things for them and trying to help them. They're going to they're gonna beat you to the promotion. And you say, you know what? That's all right. I want to help them. I want to help them do well. Wow, you're different. What's different about you? How come you're not afraid of the politics that's going on in the world? Why aren't you afraid? You may be concerned and you should vote. and You should be speaking your mind, at least while you can. Day may come when you can't, but at least while you can, speak your mind, say what you think. But you're not afraid. And you're not angry. I have never in my life seen such horrific anger coming out of the mouths of Christians. And let me tell you, you are going to be judged for that. Whether you like it or not, God is going to spank you and spank you good. I know because He's already spanked me. So I'm here to tell you that it was no fun. So, how do we, how do we get our heads around this? Very quickly, let me give you the... Three things, very simple, that I think he's getting across in these passages, starting in verse 7 and going down to verse 11. First of all, how to shape, shaping our future. He talks about the end times. Secondly, shaping our community. How and what kind of people are we going to be? You know, I cannot be responsible for the Christians in all of the world. I'm not responsible, but I am responsible for our church and what goes on in here. And to a certain extent, Dave and Rick and Ugo and Gary and I are responsible for what goes on in our presbytery, which is all of Arizona, all of New Mexico, and West Texas, El Paso, and Las Cruces, uh, since we think they're part of Texas, even though they think we're part of them. The reality is we're both part of Chihuahua. We don't even know it. So... Uh, so we've got to shape our community. What kind of community are we going to be? Christ the King, Presbyterian Church in America. What are we going to be? What are you going to be? And thirdly, how we're going to share God's glory. So let's go through these quickly. Shaping our present, uh, shaping our community, and uh, gl- the glory of God. Sharing in that glory. First of all, share, shaping our present. He talks about the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. Here's very quickly... The, the, there's actually a, a several ways you can go when it comes to the end. When, when Peter talks about the end of all things being at hand, 
you can think of fatalism, you can, and which is our, this is today, this is our fatalistic society, which is identical to Peter's day. This is why it is so relevant. The, same thing. Pre, this is, you live for the present. I'm going to live for right now. I'm going to live for the present. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. And after we die, we just go in the ground. That's the end. I don't know. I can't change my past. Hey, the past is the past. And the future, hey, who knows what's going to happen in the future. So I'm going to live for today. Carpe diem. I'm going to grab today. I'm going to live for today. I'm going to indulge myself. So we are hedonistic. We want to just have all the fun we can. We party till we drop. We do all of that. We shop till we drop. We do whatever we do, but we drop. We're going all out with all the gusto we have for the present. And a lot of that is true. You know, all you have is the present. And no, you cannot change the past. And you don't know the future. You can't even control the future. You know what's going to happen. Even secular people know they can't control the future. And the Bible says you can't control the future. But that's the way fatalism takes us. Then there's this next thing. When you talk about the end, either the end of the world or the end of your life, whatever the end is, the end of all things is at hand, Peter says. I'm going to tell you what he's referring to in a moment. We can get preoccupied with the future. There is a preoccupation with the future. We'll say, oh, I, I can't change the past, but i got to know what's going to happen. What's the stock market going to do? What are these politicians going to do? What's Chuck going to say next? Oh my God. It's just any kind of thing like that. We're preoccupied with the future. And in Peter's day, their preoccupation for many of them referred to the second coming of Christ. When is He going to come? They were preoccupied with it. And this preoccupation with the future, folks, is extremely unhealthy. It spawns, and if you don't know this, you've just been living somewhere, you know, in the... It spawns a plethora of false teachers... Turn on your television and you will hear every kind of crazy thing in the world about the end times. It started with Hal Lindsey back in the 60s and 70s when he wrote his book, The Late Great Planet Earth. And then you've got these guys that wrote Left Behind, uh, uh, Jenkins and uh, Tim LaHaye. God bless them. Uh, you know, but they write these books... And you've got people like John Hagee, who his church, the entire front of his church is this gigantic timeline, and now they're going to break out a wall because they've got to keep going because they've missed it by a thousand years. They've got to keep pushing the wall out because he's got to keep writing all his stuff. This is raw, outrageous heresy. It's heresy. Every single bit of it. And I know because I came into the Christian faith as a young teenager in those days. And I came into it, it was nothing but lies. Lies and lies and more lies to separate you from your money. They don't know when the last days are. Or they claim they know when the last days are. I'm telling you we are in the last days. I know when the last days are. And so I'm saying that stuff's heresy and stay away from it. And the latest one is the red blood moons. Did you hear about the blood moons? How many of you heard about the blood moons? Okay. Do you know that time has gone and passed? Where is that guy? Why isn't he under a pile of stones? For being a false prophet. Why do we just let these guys get away and pass up the end times? Liar, liar, pants on fire. 
That's what you should say. Liar, liar, pants on fire. This preoccupation with the end spawns this kind of stuff because we're terrified of what's going to happen. It leads to hysteria. I know there are some of you that actually know Christians that are not going to have children because the end is coming. Right? Or they're building bunkers, or they're storing food, or they're doing whatever they have to do because they're so terrified of the end times coming. Instead, Peter's saying, live in hope. Live in loving engagement with your culture. Live in service to your culture. Live in sober wisdom. And all the while preparing for the end, his final end, he could come any minute, any second, any moment, or it could be two million years. And instead, we're wringing our hands, reading the newspaper, trying to find the signs to see if we should really get ready for the rapture, which, by the way, there is not going to be a rapture. Do you understand? There's not going to be one. Not like it's described. Now, if you have problems with that, I'm happy to stay after church and talk to you about it. There will be a rapture. There will be one rapture. And it will become when the the heavens are going to tear apart like a scroll and Jesus is going to come riding on a white horse with a sword of judgment and He is going to come and absolutely consume this earth in judgment. Peter's going to refer to that later. And every eye will see Him and every tongue will praise Him and all will mourn His coming, even us because of the judgment that's coming. No little baby in a manger, a warrior king at the head of an army that is terrifying and horrific. Aren't you glad you came today? (laughs) Many struggled with this. Then as now, because uh, Jesus, Jesus said things, some will not see death until they see the coming of the kingdom. And we tie that to the final ultimate end day. This generation will not pass until all these things happen. And we think it's, you know, gosh, you, you know, it must be any time. It must be any moment now. They thought that. And so they thought when, when Christians and people started to die naturally and be martyred, the Christians of that day and Peter's day were saying, God, what's going on? I mean, what? In fact, Peter talks about it in his next letter. Because people were saying to Peter and the apostles, hey, where's... The promise of His coming. Everything's continuing. Where's the promise of His coming? Paul, the Apostle Paul, even had to address to his protege, Peter, uh, t- Timothy, uh, the problem because some of the leaders in the church were going around saying, hey, the resurrection's already passed. You've missed it. And this is the danger, folks, of fatalism on the one hand, speculation, unhealthy speculation, and preoccupation with the future on the other The Gospel simply says this. Listen to me, I'm going to tell you what the Gospel says. Take it or leave it. I hope you'll take it because it will make your life joyful and hopeful and uplifting and uh, even though maybe I'm not doing a good job of that right now. The end is at hand. What Peter is saying in the Gospel, he says, you know, the past is the past, yes. But I've done something about the past. 
Jesus Christ died on a cross in the past. Jesus was born in the past. Jesus raised from the dead in the past. Jesus gave us the sacrament in the past. Jesus ascended to His heaven, heavenly home in the past. He sat on the right hand of God in the past. And He is holding the scepter of righteousness in His right hand today. And He is not king in absentia. He is king of the universe today. Right now. And He will come again in the future. The Gospel reaches out and absorbs all of time, past, present, and future. Brings it down into the, to the person and work of Christ. And then tells the people of God, live, live, enjoy your life. Mourn when it's right to mourn. Lament when you must lament. Have joy when it's time to joy. Weep with those that weep. Rejoice with those that rejoice. Live your life. Be part of society. Make a difference. Love like you've never loved before. Give generously like you've never given before. Pour your life out for this world. Because He's going to come back and save this world. Do you see the difference, folks? That's the Gospel. The last days are that time when Jesus is ruling this world in His, in His church among us. And if we don't see that, we are going to hunker and bunker and wring our hands and believe every kind of thing that comes along, no matter how wacky it is, and fall for everything. One commentator said this, even if society judges the Christian gospel to be undesirable or irrelevant, listen, Everything will be judged in reference to the resurrected Christ. And that judgment is near. This is what this scripture means. The judgment is near because the resurrection has already happened. I've used this illustration before. I'll remind you of it. Jesus coming to this earth was a tear in time. Uh, Dr. Bruce Walke said it was an eruption. Not eruption, Eruption, I-R-R-U-P-T-I-O-N, if you want to write it down. Eruption. An eruption is what a volcano does. It explodes from the inside out. An eruption is the tearing of the outside and something pouring in. And so that night in Bethlehem, when the angels showed up, it was not a choir of angels, it was a host It was the army of Almighty God with all their chariots and all their weapons and all their power and all their might and all their glory coming to accompany the captain of their salvation into this world they erupted in. And the world has never been the same since, nor will it ever be. With Him, His birth, A tsunami occurred. An earthquake. A cosmic earthquake. And we're somewhere out here. I don't know where we are. But the ocean heaved and rolled. The chaos, the toho, the bohu was shaken by the resurrection. When the stone rolled away, the tsunami happened. The earth broke. And the wave starts rolling this way. And so it's closer now than when I began the story. And it'll be closer when I finish the sermon than it was when it started. 
The day is near. It's coming. It's approaching. Live. Live like you mean it. Live like you believe the Gospel. Because the end is near. It's nearer now than when I just said it a moment ago. Do you see the, the tidal wave is coming? The tsunami is coming. I don't know when. It may take two million years to get here. It may happen while I'm preaching. You see? And that's how we're to live. Peter says the end is near. So, what is it? Let me give it to you very quickly. It's a, a, a period of time, not a point in time. When he says the end is near, it is a period of time, not a point in time. Write it down. It's a period of time, not a point in time. That's what the end of near means. That's what the last days means. That's what Jesus meant when He said you're going to see earthquakes and, 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 and all these things are going to happen, these upheavals in the world, war, rumors of the world. All He's saying is it's all going to be, you're going to see it throughout history until the end comes. These things are going to go on and on and on until I come. Then you know. And you're not going to know till I show up like a thief in the night. That means you're not going to know. Because a thief, you're not sitting there with your shotgun across your lap every night, are you? Well, a few of you are. We will pray for you. God help you. you know. No, 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 no. We're not doing that. When a thief comes, they come. The, the whole idea is to surprise you. You don't know. Okay, so a thief comes. I spent way too much time on that. I'm sorry. Do you get it? That's what the end is near. Peter's telling them, look, the end is near. Now live like you mean it. Live like you believe it. And then he gives us four exhortations. Let me see if I can go through this quickly. And maybe we have to do more next week. I hope not. But he says these four things. Live in sobriety. Love earnestly. Show hospitality. And finally, live in, in abundant service uh, to others. So what does he mean by sobriety? Uh, what he means is, not literally and figuratively, he's saying don't be drunk. Don't be out of control. Don't have your mind dulled by addiction. And drunkenness in their day was generally alcohol and other things. Uh, today, it ha you know, we have all kinds of other things. We've got drugs. We have uh, marijuana. They had marijuana then, but you know, they didn't really know how to do it right. They needed to live through the 60s. Um, but out, they had alcohol. They had other drugs. They had opium. You know, they used opioids like we do. I mean, it was, the world was full of that stuff just like now. And people abused these things just like now. What's different is they used them in their religious. It would be like me bringing in a whole bowl full of, of joints and, uh, and, and opioids and saying, come on, let's worship Jesus. Everybody take one. You know, let's drop some acid today. We'll really worship God. Okay, do you get the idea? This is what they were doing. And he says, no, 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 be sober. Don't be addicted to these things. Don't let them control you. Don't let them control your body or your mind. Be clear-headed. Think. Not stumbling around in a haze all the time. And this is what he's talking about. And he says, do it for the sake of your prayers. Commentator Peter David says this, beautiful. It's not prayer. He's talking specifically about Peter, this context in Peter. It's not prayer based in desperation. In other words, you're going around in, in a stupor all the time because of not literal drunkenness, but just this, this 
abstract way that Christians can find themselves in drunken stupor. Uh, some of it from alcohol and drugs, but some of it from other things. And we'll talk about that later. It's not prayer based in desperation, like throwing up these Hail Mary prayers. He says, but prayer that calls upon and submits to God in the light of reality, seeing from God's perspective. In other words, your, your prayers are taking you into God's will. And from his perspective, you're looking down on your own life and the life of your world, and you're seeing things in terms of the way he sees things. Wouldn't that be amazing? That we could so reorient our thinking to where we begin to pray kingdom prayers based on how God sees this world instead of how we see this world. Most of our prayers are desperate because we're desperate. Instead of being sober, thinking, perceiving, understanding, being aware, self, under self-control, clear-headed. The Greek word actually is con- the contrast to the Greek word here of sobriety is mania. <laughs> Can you believe that? He's saying, in other words, instead of being crazy out of your mind, maniacs, like a, m- a lot of evangelical Christianity in America, which is our supposedly our tribe, are maniacs. And I'm your pastor, and I'm telling you, calm the heck down, folks. Get a grip on reality from God's perspective. All is not lost. The world is in chaos. It always has been, by the way. Yes? If you were living in 1933, you would think that today is Disneyland. Yes? Admit it. Please say yes. If you were living in 1943, you would think this is Disneyland. But not if you listen to people talking out there in the church. Everybody's wringing their hand. Except for a few. There are a few people out there that are saying, stay engaged. Don't be afraid. And we're part of that group. You like that? Say yes, we want to be part of that group. Give me some affirmation. Feeling a little weak here. A little little insecure. Love earnestly. He's talking about not emotional intensity, but constant love. He's not talking about emotional, this emotional kind of love. He's talking, he uses a word, uh, constant being the kind of love that stretches. Do you ever feel like you need that kind of love? from somebody please I wish they'd just let me you know give me a little room here but instead we dial our love down pretty tight and we say you know I'll love you as long as you do this you do this and I'll love you we don't make room we're not spacious we don't stretch and he's saying you know in your Christian community and if you want to form a real community that makes a difference that knocks people's eyes out have a community that stretches that's kind, that's forgiving, that's open-minded, open-hearted. And hospitality, he says you need to celebrate hospitality. It's Mother's Day and I'm going to take a minute of personal privilege and tell you what hospitality is. I was raised in a Middle Eastern home by two very traditional Middle Eastern grandmothers. My, my, my mom's mom and my dad's mom. My dad's mother... Middle Eastern hospitality is legendary around the world. 
legendary for excess. So let me tell you about these two mothers, how cute and how wonderful they are, and what hospitality should look like. My mom's, my dad's mom cooked probably 20 hours a day. I'm not joking. 20 hours a day. You could go at 4 in the morning and she'd have coffee going and she'd be cooking. I know because I actually showed up there a few times at 4 o'clock in the morning afraid to go home. And she had in her house at least three, I don't know, three or four freezers. I know of three. I think she had a fourth one. I'm not talking about these little freezers. I mean full chest freezers stand up eight feet tall. She needed a ladder. She was little. She had to get a ladder to get it. She cooked 20 hours a day and had all this food in those freezers. We used to tease her and say, you're ready for anything. You're ready for a wedding. You're ready for a baptism. You're ready for nuclear war. Yeah, yeah. Anything that came along, she was ready. You go to her house any time of the day or night, food would come pouring out, and before too long there'd be food, but you couldn't eat it all anyway, and she didn't really care just as long as you were there and you were stuffing yourself. My other grandmother, my mom's mom, she was completely different. Completely different. She had a little refrigerator that was a side-by-side refrigerator. But her refrigerator was magic. Have any of you seen Mary Poppins? Anybody? You know Mary Poppins' carpet bag, her purse? That was my grandmother's refrigerator. And I promise you, this is true. I won't say it. I was going to say, may God strike me dead, but I won't say it. Uh, he might. Um, she would open that refrigerator and this, this glorious light would come pulsating out of her refrigerator and stuff would start coming out of this little freezer. You know those side-by-sides? They don't hold anything. Stuff would start coming out. It's like it never ended. And we'd kind of peek. You know, she wouldn't let us see inside. <laughs> Pulling out food. Food, food, food. And we'll go, where the heck is it coming from? And then she passed away. We don't know what happened to the refrigerator. <laughs> God, somebody got that refrigerator. <laughs> where did it come from? And before too long, it's like, whoa, where did all this food come from out of that little tiny space? But there was that glow, that yellow light. Hospitality, open-heartedness, the joy of opening your life doesn't mean you have to prepare these outrageous meals. I mean, I can tell you stories about that maybe another time. But it's not that. It's the open-heartedness. It's the welcome. My dad's mom, I have walked into her house, my dad's mother, in the middle of the day, and somebody is sitting there in her house. i never seen them before in my life, and they're laughing and drinking coffee. And I say to my grandmother, hello, how are you? Who is this? She says, oh, this is so-and-so. She was passing by on her way to the bus. I was watering the grass. So I said, come in and eat. <laughs> and I would ask my grandmother, didn't she miss the bus? Oh, yeah, I'm going to take her. <laughs> it didn't matter. You see, I mean, she was just, she, her, her heart was open. Hospitality is not about all this magnificent entertaining, although that's great if that you love to do that. And I've been entertained and we've entertained. I know you have. But it's an open-heartedness to have people in your life. It's a willingness to make time in your life for somebody else. 
Do you know one of the greatest sins in our current culture is now? We're too dang busy to do anything. We're too preoccupied with ourselves. We don't have time for anybody. Carve out some time in your life for others that you can be hospitable. This is what he's talking about. Open-heartedness. Open-heartedness. I'm running out of time, folks. I'm so sorry. Finally, service. He's saying we've got to serve each other. And he says, in word and deed. In word and deed. So that we can share. This is the final point, and maybe I'll catch up us up next week. I, I apologize. Sharing God's glory. So that by everything, look at this final verse, so that by everything you do, you might be glorified so that God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. Then he can't stand it anymore. Peter can't hold it in anymore like Paul and some of the other writers. They just, they, they've been writing these things and writing and thinking and all of a sudden they just burst forth with a doxology, with a praise. And he says, to whom Jesus, when, it, when he hits Jesus, when he hits that name, Jesus Christ, he can't, he can't contain himself anymore. He says, Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter loses it altogether and now his whole life is focused on Jesus. You want to know why? Do you want to know why he could write these magnificent things that he wrote and then it brings him to the place of doxology to praise where he cannot control himself anymore? Because Jesus was sober, intentional, clear-headed. It said when He set His mind to go to Jerusalem to die, He was like hard as flint. He let nothing turn Him aside from that mission. Peter was there. Not even Peter could sway Him. Peter said, don't do it. Don't go. And Jesus rebukes him and says, Satan, get behind me. Peter saw the loving life. Jesus making room. Making room. Clearing out the room. For prostitutes. For sinners. For tax collectors. For the filthy. For the leper. For the blind. For the deaf. For you. For me. He cleared the room. His love was spacious, elastic. It stretched, it stretched whole so wide that it could engulf the entire world. And a thousand worlds besides, John Owen said. He was hospitable. He says, you want to know me? You want to know me? You got to come live with me. You have to follow me. You have to live where I live, hear what I... You've got to see me, who for I really am. Live with me. Don't visit me on Sunday morning. Don't even bother. Better spend your time elsewhere. But if you want me, you've got to live with me. So he told his disciples, follow me. And you want to see service? Peter saw this. This is what he's thinking about while he's writing, folks. Think about it. I had this man that I know is raised from the dead. I know he is God Almighty. And I remember, because it was not that long ago, he knelt at my feet. He washed my filthy feet. He dried them with, with a towel. He held my feet in his hand. 
This is the man that's writing this letter. This is the man who from his experience, he saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration with all of his glory and he saw Jesus filthy and beaten half to death hanging on a cross for you and for me and for him. Do you see it? Transformed Peter and he's pleading with the church, pleading with you and I, Be transformed by that cross, by that power, by that resurrection, by that life. Let it make you different. Not in a moment, over a period of time, but He will do it. Will you trust Him? I pray to God that our little church can trust Him. You know, that that will attract people to you. That will make you somebody. Be a servant, be hospitable, open-hearted, loving earnestly with, with room in your life for other people, even those you don't particularly like. And staying sober. I'm not saying don't become a teetotaler. I'm not in any way recommending that. But what I am saying is, be clear-headed, clear-thinking. I hope you'll do it. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank You for our Lord Jesus. Thank You for all the things He did. And who knew better than our dear friend, the Apostle Peter, who has written these things from his personal experience. He watched. He saw every one of these things. He's not asking anything of us that Jesus did not do for us when He deserved everything so much better. Help us, Lord Jesus. Help us to be those kinds of people, I pray you will, that we might attract others to your beauty, your glory. We pray this in your name. Amen.